Welcome to the Mama Truth Show, where soulful mamas embrace the whole truth of the messiness and magic of motherhood. Check us out at mamatruthshow.com. Here's your host, Amy Ehlers, the Wake Up Call Coach. Hello, mamas, and welcome to the Mama Truth Show. It's Amy Ehlers here, and here we are for part three of the Race Relations Series here on the Mama Truth Show. These shows have been really profound for me personally, and I hope they have been for you as well. And I hope that you're sharing them. And I hope that you're taking what you're learning and really putting it into practice in your life. Because as moms and some of you watching may be a dad, maybe a woman or a man, like everybody's welcome to listen to these shows because I really felt so inspired to do everything I can to spread more love, spread more joy, and educate ourselves about how we can become better allies to the black community. If you're not in the black community and those of you that are in the black community or any community for that matter, regardless of your culture, your race, any of that, I just want all of you to know how deeply I care and how deeply so many people care about what's going on in this country. So I invited a very special guest today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Her name is Desiree Attaway. I love that it rhymes. So that I can- it totally <laughs> rhymes. <laughs> Woo! All right. So Desiree Attaway is from the Attaway Group. Her website is DesireeAttaway.com. I will include that link, of course, in the show notes. And the Attaway Group is a minority and woman-owned consulting firm that brings together multiracial teams to work on projects related to racial equality and social justice. So I'm sure you can see why I'm so excited that she's with us here today. Desiree, welcome to the Mama Truth Show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I so appreciate um, you wanting to chat. Yeah, definitely. So, so let's just go for it. Let's just dive in there. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your story. What brought you into really talking about social justice and racial equality and what is really motivating you behind that and what you're noticing right now going on in the world? Sure. So, um, you know, I am from Chicago originally, a lower middle class family. A little kind of note is actually Michelle Obama and I went to the same high school, even though... What? What? Right? She's four years older than me and we did not know each other, but I don't let that stop me. <laughs> went to the same high school. I'm like, hey, Shelly, shout out to Michelle. Yeah, yeah. Um, over, over, and I came from lower middle class family, right? My family, my parents were laborers and nobody went to, I was the first person to go to college. And so um, there was no one in my family to kind of teach me or show me what a professional looked like. And so I, mm-hmm. I then went out into the business world, well, just the, the, the world of work and had to kind of find things out for myself. And over my career, I had many, many situations where I was the only woman, where I was the only person of color, where I was the only one that came from a working class background. And I don't know if you guys have any idea of how awful it is to know that when you speak, so many people think you're speaking for an entire community of race of people. Wow. Right? That you are never allowed a mistake, right? That you're being judged by the standard that you really isn't yours and that you can't really meet. And so it was just exhausting in a lot of ways. And I actually learned to navigate that world very well and became very successful in it. But um, 
my work over the past few years have been focused on helping institutions and individuals, but institutions, which let's be clear, if we look at institutions around this country, they're founded, shaped, owned, and dominated by white men, the majority of institutions. And so I've been doing work within institutions and with individuals to create more welcoming and supportive work environments for everyone, especially folks of color, women, and more recently, those in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and disability communities. So, but, you know, if people kind of ask me, like, what was the moment that changed everything for me? Um, It was August of 2014, and it was Ferguson. It was Mike Brown being killed and being left on the street for hours. Um, I tell people that's the day that I was racial. That's the day that I was radicalized. That is the day that changed everything for me. Um, for me, for me as a black woman, it was horrifying. Um, the other very emotional day for me um, was the day that. Um, Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And I'll tell you why that was devastating for me. I actually expected that. That didn't shock me. Hmm. But um, my daughter was 23 at the time. And uh, she called me bawling because she said, I really thought, like, she's just like, I don't understand. Please explain this to me. Why? And that was the day I had to have a real conversation with my kid to tell her that there's a difference between fairness and justice and that she really needed to understand that. And that um, life was not always fair, nor was it always just. And as a mother, it's devastating, right? Yeah. Have that conversation with your kid. Um, And, um, and, part of that conversation had come from because her boyfriend at the time um, was living in New York. He is a pretty successful artist there and um, had been stopped quite a few times for stop and frisk and just randomly stopped on the street and, you know, stopped without cause, frisked without cause. And it, and it was being, it was really taking a toll on him emotionally yeah. Um, and psychologically, and so she was dealing with all of this at the same time, and uh, and then when Trayvon happened, she just was like, I, I just, what kind of world do we live in? And so, um, those were two really important times for me. Um, I've always been one to have difficult conversations. That's been one of the key marks, hallmarks of my work within organizations and with individuals. If there's an elephant in the room, I'm going to point it out. Let's deal with it. Let's handle it. And so now I use that skill set to have difficult conversations around race, class, and gender. Because I think those are the most important conversations that this country should be having right now. Those are the only ones that will move us forward. Those are the only ones that will actually bring equity to this, to this country and, um, and, and help us heal. Yeah. Um, okay, just taking a breath. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like anytime as moms, we watch our children's heartbreak when they realize the truth of what's happening is devastating as a parent. Like we want it to change so bad. 
and it's like when that reality hits, it's, <clears throat> oh. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And um, my oldest daughter works for an, an, a major ad agency, and she does great work, and she loves what she does. But um, she she was emotionally exhausted from the back-to-back killings that had been happening recently. Yeah. And um, with what had happened in Baton Rouge and then what had happened in Minneapolis and what had happened in Dallas, like she was just exhausted and she was at work and she was sitting at her desk one day and she started crying. And um, no one asked her what was wrong. Everyone walked around her and she cried at her desk. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Organizations have no idea how to talk. People as individuals did not know what to say to her. And so they chose to say nothing. And that happens quite often. You say it on the internet all the time. People are like, well, I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say. Right. Well, and I think, you know, and this is something that I've been talking about on these shows too, as a, as a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired woman. Like, I, you know, I get afraid to say the wrong thing. But it was like with the recent events that have happening, I was like, I don't really give a flying fuck, excuse my <laughs> French, but if I say the wrong thing, it is better than saying nothing. I will not stand for this any longer. Yeah. You know, and I need to learn how to become a better ally. And I need to do that for my daughters who are growing up in such a beautifully rich, you know, diverse community. And I know you and I were talking before we started recording about you know, my, my oldest daughter in school, she's going into fourth grade in the fall and, you know, she, it's, it's a very diverse classroom. Her best, two of her best friends happen to be black. And we were talking about, you know, you and I were talking about, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about what we as parents who have children that have friends of different races, what we need to do to educate them so that we can help keep our, you know, people of color safe in yeah. the world right now. Yeah. And so one of the things is really, um, I know, especially of a certain age, kids, some kids are like, I don't want to talk about race, right? Like, you know, this is my friend, Justin, and Justin is just Justin. And I don't want to talk about Justin being black or Justin being Hispanic or Justin being native. And I think as parents, it is our job. And, and if you're of a certain age, I'm 50. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of folks in my era, a lot of white people in my era, Parents said, be colorblind. Right. Don't acknowledge it. Don't say it. And so some of the kids want that now. And that is actually the wrong thing to do. It is to really sell your kid. You know what? Justin is your friend and Justin is black. And there's so much awesome stuff around that. And I would think that Justin wants to be acknowledged for all of Justin's gifts. Yeah. There's so much gift that Justin is sharing by being black with this world and this culture. And you get, you, you have a great relationship with Justin. So you benefit from it, right? Like we want to always fully see each other right. and what that colorblindness and, and how that has insidiously like made its way into institutions and to society. What it says is, Oh, you want Desiree to come and be in the room with you, but you actually just want her skin. <laughs> You don't want me to bring my full self to the situation. Because that's enough. Right? Um, Because if I bring my full self, then you have to acknowledge my identity as a woman. You have to acknowledge 
you know, all of these other parts of me that I'm going to bring to the table that are really important to my well-being. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's hard for us. So um, we don't want people to just bring parts of themselves, right? We want to be right. able to bring our whole selves to everything that we do. And that's acknowledging that I am black and that that has an impact on my world and, and not ignoring that. And so again, the elephant in the room, let's acknowledge it and let's teach our children how to have these conversations now. What do you feel like is a way that people can invite the whole of you or the whole of a person of color into the room? How can we as a society start really inviting all of that and inviting that conversation, especially when it's something that we don't have training in, we feel uncomfortable with, and I'm so glad that you're doing the course that you're doing, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's like, how do we, like, what are some tips that you can give us so that we can start that, whether it's with our children and their friends, any of that, how can we do that? So I think we have to look at, at culture, right? Mm -hmm. And things, what is culture? Culture is belief and customs and morals and habits and ways of life. And it's, a, it's powerful precisely because it's so present, but it's so difficult to identify. So things that are normal to you um, are based in a dominant culture because you're white. And so things that, the way that you navigate the world is just definitely different than the way that I navigate the world. Um, and that shows up in a lot of different ways. And some people are always shocked when I talk about it. So one of the ways that it shows up is when we say things like we value, um, that belief that there's things you can be purely objective. Right. Right. That, that belief that there's, there's a right way or to do or see things. Um, this belief that emotionals are rational and often irrelevant to decision-making or group process. When we want to hurry up group processes, right? Because when we do that, then guess what? There are a lot of people who voices don't get heard. So when we put this sense of urgency, when we build in the sense of urgency to get things done, to get things to market, to make things happen, we leave out a whole swatch of folks whose voices are never heard. Mm. And we don't even realize that that's the way we've created a lot of our institutions, a lot of our work styles, a lot of the ways that we do things, um, because that's just the way they've always been done. Right. And those are the people that we acknowledge. So within an organization, I always talk to people about, you know who we love to hire? People who can get things done without a lot of, fo- of people, authority following them because we value that, but really what we could be giving up is someone who's a better relationship builder than we ever thought, right? Right. We value the written word. You have to write really well over relationships, Hmm. over people that can make deeper, richer relationships. We value, you know, one way of thinking over another way of thinking. Um, And so, it's up to us to just be aware of how these are just so intrinsically put into the way we do our work, the way that we um, are in community with others, and it just doesn't always fit. So um, 
this kind of either or thinking. Yeah. Right. It's good or bad. It's right or wrong. It's you're with us or against us. And it's difficult to see both an and. Um, if defensiveness, defensiveness normally shows up out of fear, losing face, losing comfort, losing privilege, losing power. Right. And understanding that this fear of conflict, this right to comfort, you know, we've made comfort a value in this country. It is a value. People will work and kill them. just to, I need to be comfortable. And there's this belief that people have the, especially those with power have the right to emotional and psychological comfort at all times. Mm. That no one is ever to be uncomfortable, that we have this inability to sit with emotional or cognitive discomfort. Um, and that's horrible because that's how we change. Right. That's where growth happens. Right. But, but we go out of our way. I mean, we literally go out of our way to never, ever be uncomfortable. And we go out of our way to make sure our children are never uncomfortable. Right. And I think that that's, that's shortchanging people. That's where this fragility is coming from. Right. And so, um, yeah, being afraid of conflict, uh, running away from it, uh, denying its presence, all of those things, we think, oh, that's just as a person. But those are things that have been baked into our society. And those are the things that have been, you're rewarded, right? If you're polite. Right. You use the right tone. You're rewarded, right? Um, those are the people that get promoted at work, not the troublemakers, not those speaking up, right? And we do it to our kids, right? We want our kids very well behaved, right? Don't speak up. Don't cause conflict, right? You know, it's interesting. On the last show that I did with Carl Wright, I was um, I told a story about my daughter. Um, and I woke up in the middle of the night freaking out that I had shared that story. Like I woke up at four in the morning. I couldn't get back to sleep. I was tossing and turning. I was like, I think maybe I need to edit that out. I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, this is totally the white fragility thing that we were talking about. I'm like, that's, this is it right here, this moment. And so I'm like, I need to have a conversation with my daughter and let her know I shared the story about her. Um, and so I did that and I said, you know, is it okay that mommy was talked about you on the show? And she was so amazing because of course she's, you know, she's a kid, right? So she's so resilient. She doesn't have, you know, she was like, mommy, you can say anything you want about me as long as it's helping. And I was like, Okay, thank you, Buddha. Like, thank you, oh, wise one. I was like, okay. And then I was like, really had to go into my head and say, okay, was that story, did that story help? And I knew in my heart and my soul that it did. And so it's been, you know, it's out in the world now. And I, like, but that, that was the moment I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what we were talking about. And like you were saying, it's like the, those things that are uncomfortable, those things that are like, I've felt so agitated as I've been doing this series. And every time I'm like the agitation, I feel like I'm coming out of my skin. And then it's like, good. Yeah. You know, this friction is it. This is where the goodness is. This is what creates change. 
We've been told the tension is so bad and so wrong, right? Everybody's like, like, don't upset anyone. Don't upset the apple cart. And I actually challenge that. I'm like, why can't, why can't we have discussions? And, you know, what I have to say, and, and I said this to you before, Yeah. whenever someone is feeling extremely fragile, and I'll tell you a story, I always say, why is your emotional comfort more important than my safety? So a, a gentleman that I know, a gentleman on Facebook friend, said something on Facebook, someone responded back. He didn't like the way they responded. It, it, you know, he was upset. So he sent me a private message and he told me the story and I know what he wanted. He wanted me to say, you're a good white person. Right. You're, you're wrong and you're a good white person and forget about it. And I wouldn't say that. So after he told me the story, I said, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> And he said, is that it? Like, I expected more. And I said, I said, oh, you want me to tell you you're a good white person and you're not like everybody else? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm never going to tell you that. I said, because one, it's not about being good or bad. It's always about the system. I actually don't use the word racist and racism. I use white supremacy and I use them on purpose because it's actually about a tiered system and it's not about an individual. It's not about whether I'm good or bad. Right. And that word scares people. Because they're like white supremacy. Those are Nazis and skinheads. Those are white separatists. Mm. There's a difference. White supremacy is the system that we are all in, that we all interact in. It's the system that says, I get pulled over and I could die. And that's very real. And it's the system that says you could do the same thing and probably never, ever get pulled over. Right. It's the system that says you're always given the benefit of the doubt, and I rarely am. It's the hierarchy. And you're, you know, you're not at the top of that. There's white men that are at the top of that. Right. right. And so understanding that it's a system and that we all play these roles in it, and it's up to all of us then to change the system. And it's not being good, and it's not being bad, and it's not using certain language. It's all through the action of how we're in, of how we are building community with one another and how we're responding to policy. Right. So after I didn't say that for him and he said, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. I said to him, I said, look, let's let's just break this down. What really happened? Someone that you don't know said something that hurt your feelings on Facebook. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it was. Yeah. I'm like, let's put it down to it's just someone that you actually don't know in real life said something that hurt your feelings on social media. Yeah. I'm like, you were never in danger. Your physical being was never in danger. And this goes back to my next point. Being uncomfortable is not the same as being in physical danger. That's right. And people need to understand and have some awareness around that. 
I don't know if you've been seeing, there are a lot of things that are happening where folks are calling the police when they see a stranger walking in their neighborhood, usually a brown person. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know who that person is, so I'm going to call the police. You being uncomfortable with a new person does not mean a call to the police. It actually means that you should probably just say hello to the new person walking down the street or ask them if they're lost or can they help you? Or are you, oh, you're my new neighbor. It's so nice to meet you. Mm. I have so many clients who are like, yeah. I mean, literally have had the police called on them in their own neighborhoods. As they're getting in their own cars, as they're going to ATM machines, because someone feels uncomfortable. And that's the work for allies, is to do their own internal work, right? Racism shows up in lots of different ways, right. but that internal work around our implicit bias about people and situation, that work has got to happen. So, you know, it's interesting, because where I go to, um, as well, being, especially being a woman is, you know, they've done all these studies when women, for example, you know, when a crime was committed towards someone that before the moment occurred, they had that intuition that something was off and that something was wrong. And so how do we, um, as a society, allow that intuition and inner wisdom to be there, but no longer have it be about racial bias. So I always talk about it in two ways. Yeah. So that intuition, that's your gut. That will always keep you safe. Yep. That tells you not to walk down a certain street, right? That tells you this person, not so cool. That's great. This is what tells you to be scared of that black person. Mm-hmm. It's the brain. It's that, it's that this will keep you small and scared for the rest of your existence, yeah. right? And that's where you've been fed years and years and years worth of data. That's every movie you've seen, everything you heard as a kid, right? That's all the news you've digested and ingested. And so what that means, that is mean when you're in a situation, you also have the gift of discernment. Yes. And when you hear yourself, and we all do it, when you hear your brain says, um, I don't know if I can trust that, you have to ask yourself, why? Because that didn't come from here. That came from here. Right? So it is, it is our awareness. It is our awareness, again, around Am I really scared here or am I just uncomfortable? Am I really in danger? Or is this me being incredibly fragile in this moment? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that discernment. Um, I know we're going to start running out of time. So let me ask you this. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter and that movement and what that means to you personally and what you feel like it means on a bigger scale as well. Well, I have to, I have to be totally honest. A lot of, I, I work with a lot of Black Lives Matter activists. Mm-hmm. They're some of my clients. I do support for them. And I, I love the movement for many reasons. Um, 
One is because I think it's true. Black Lives Matter. And I think, you know, we like to think that in 50 years, so many, so much has changed. I mean, like the Voting Rights Act was only 50 years old, right? So we have over 300 years of slavery and segregation and a little bit over 50. It ain't been a long time. Right. And within that, one of the things I love about the Black Lives Matter movement is a couple of things. It is saying that everybody is a value. So when you think about the civil rights movement, it was very much about, you know, the church and respectability. And some of the greatest leaders in the civil rights movements were gay, who you never saw in front, and were women, who you never saw up front. Hmm. Right, Fannie Lou Hamer, Bella, Ella Baker, like all of these amazing women who you never saw up front, right? And so one thing that, the Black Lives Matter movement has been really intentional about is leadership of queer folks being in the forefront of the work that they do, um, that no one gets left behind, and that this whole kind of respectability po- politics, like, oh, you know, you're college educated and totally acceptable to us and palatable to us, so you're good black, and oh, you are unemployed, and you know, you may have gone to jail, so you're bad black. And so we really don't have time for you. Hmm. And it is saying we all matter and none of us get left behind ever. And the, when you look at who is the most vulnerable of black people, it is black trans people. And so wow. that is the level. That's what is always talked about is when black trans folks are safe, then we're all safe. Because they're the most vulnerable out there. So I love the movement because it's young. I love the movement because it include it is inclusive of all types of black folks. It allows people to say, This is who I am fully as myself, and it's still acceptable for me to be safe and free as I walk this world. Um, and I love it because it is demanding that these systems which are killing us be looked at yeah right when we talk about um policing and police brutality when we talk about um incarceration and incarceration rates when we talk about education and the prison to um the school to prison pipeline that has been built i don't know if y'all know but uh, um they have been taking statistics from school districts and statewide how many dropouts and how many failing students. That helps to determine how many prison beds they build in states. Wow. That's part of the algorithm. So there is a very clear school to prison pipeline. Wow. Um, and these are all things that affect black folks today. And so I, 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 one thing I said to you prior is when I say black lives matter, I'm not asking for anybody else's opinion. My life matters. And I don't have to justify that to anybody. Um, and so, and I can say it and not feel like it means that nobody else's lives matters. Cause that's not true. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the movement. 
it'll be great to see where it goes. I know people have a lot to say about it. It's only three years old. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The civil rights movement lasted 15 years. Wow. This is not stopping tomorrow. This is not stopping the next day. This will be ongoing. These systems changing. Um, this is a long-term fight. And so um, it's in its infancy, and I'm enjoying watching it evolve and the people that are doing that work. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I wanted to let all of you that are tuning in here know about Desiree's new class that she has coming out. I want to give the URL and then maybe you can say a few words about it, Desiree. Sure, sure. Um, so the URL is DesireeAdaway.com slash diversity. And I will have that up as well um, in the show notes, et cetera. So you can check that out. It's called Diversity is an Asset. So tell us a little bit about what inspired that program and what people can take away from it. So I have a, a friend, a partner that I work with a lot on projects. Her name is Erica Hines. And, um, and, and we, we work within organizations, but we also work with individuals around this work. And so we put together um, a four-week class. And because, you know, all the time we get questions like, I want to be brave, but I don't know how. And I'm scared to have these conversations or you know, I don't want to offend anybody. So what do I say? Or my company says they value diversity, but they really don't do anything about it. So what I do. And so, um, so we decided that instead of just having constantly having these individual conversations, we would actually just put together a curriculum that would really support this. So it works on levels. It works on the individual level and the organizational level. Um, And, we really dig in so people can learn key terms related to diversity and equity and inclusion and why they're essential, um, really helping folks to map out the most effective way to bring more diversity, equity, and inclusion into their personal and professional lives. One of the things I always say, if the only brown people you know are on Facebook, we got a problem. <laughs> if the only brown people that you ever interact with are on Facebook or social media, we got a problem. Yeah. Right. Um, we talk about how to identify both the positive and negative mindsets and behaviors that words that limit us for really fully showing up as um, we talk about how to's a diversifying your own personal network. Um, so one of the pieces that I posted on Facebook recently, which has gotten a lot of traction is I've invited all um, white folks who are a part of my world or any world to take six months and only read books by authors of color. Only read books by people of color for six months. That's all I'm asking. Just hear a different voice and a different perspective. And um, it, we built out, a, and people just started putting all these lists and op, you know, of great books. And you can actually on Twitter or on Facebook, you can um, look up the um, hashtag liberation lit. And that'll give you just a whole list of books that you can start with. So if you have a book club with friends or at home or at church, any place, if you just are an avid reader, just to give yourself six months of only reading books by people of color or black people, and it will change your perspective on life. I love that. Oh, that's great. So, so we have a curriculum um, and our, our classes, four weeks, 75 minutes long. 
we record them, we have a private Facebook forum, we share resources, there's a workbook we put together. Um, but basically, uh, and then we have amazing guest speakers who are gonna come in and talk about, we're gonna discuss issues of police brutality and pay equity and transgender discrimination and immigration and all kinds of really important um, actual things that are happening in this world and, and let you be able to talk to and listen to thought leaders who can give you answers and who can help you with resources. So, Awesome. And that's a teleclass so people can participate. It's a teleclass. Here. Absolutely. Awesome. So again, that link is DesireeAttaway.com forward slash diversity. Oh my goodness, Desiree, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, one of the last questions that I ask all my guests is what's messy and what's magical about motherhood for you? Yeah. So much. Yeah. So my, my youngest daughter is 23. Uh, she's in what we are praying and hoping is her last semester of college. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah. You know, she's been doing this for five and a half years. God bless her, right? Her sister knew exactly what she wanted and did it in four years and got the job immediately and is living this life. And this one has struggled a little bit with it mm -hmm. and she's getting there. And I, you know, I just have to remind her all the time, we are 90% there and we are getting across that finish line by hook or by cloak. <laughs> I don't care how long, I don't care if I have to drag you, we are getting across that line, we are almost there. Yeah. And so she is right now, moving out of her apartment to move to Atlanta where she's been interning at a radio station. She works, works in communication and she's going to finish up her last semester online so she can stay there and continue to work. And again, like I said, by hook or by crook. So yeah. what's messy is, is this wonderful creative kid of mine finding her way and me parenting from the sidelines and helping her get there. Yeah and be her full self in this process. Mm. And what's magical about it is that I, I've been a single mom, I raised my kids on my own, mm. and uh, they're adults now, and they bring me so much joy, and they have been such, I mean, the, the women that they are today blows me away. Mm. And I think I was not nearly that smart or that confident when I was that age, yeah, and they just have it, and and um, and they're free. They are themselves. They are they are free black children, and I am proud that that's what I've raised. And so that's what's magical about about motherhood. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you so much yeah. for being on the show, and thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, as we wrap up, this is. This is the third and final um, part of this particular series. But what my commitment is, is I just want to continue this conversation throughout the life of the Mama Truth show. I don't want it to be like, okay, we had that conversation. I did three shows on it and then bye-bye. So instead, what I've really committed myself to is, I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember what next week's show is about. But what I do know is that you, we will continue to have this conversation. I have other guests lined up that are going to be showing up later in this year, moving forward. Um, and I just think that it's a continuing conversation for us to have here on the show. 
So keep tuning in. So many juicy things coming up. And with that, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of motherhood. It's Amy Ehlers signing off. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening, mamas. Did you know that Amy has a new ebook out? It's called Sacred Self-Care for Moms. Seven steps to nurturing yourself so you can be the mom you were born to be. And you can receive your free copy by going to sacredselfcarebook.com. That's sacredselfcarebook.com. And please don't keep the Mama Truth Show a secret. The biggest compliment you can give is to share the Mama Truth Show with your loved ones and write a review on iTunes. Until next time, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of motherhood.